Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast today talking about media representations of disability. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, and I'm starting a 21st century freak show in which I will display the one and only person who enjoyed the film, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. I'm Erica Spires, understanding the irony of talking about, among other things, death representation on a podcast. Very nice, Erica. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm already dreading the Tropic Thunder portion of today's discussion. And our guest. Hi, I'm Kayla Dreisey. I am a playwright which I call myself despite not having any major plays ever done. I am also a differently abled person who wanders through the lives, struggling to see and making it up as I go. Well, welcome. You were connected to us through Sabrina Weiss, who was on Partially Examined Life a couple times. So we're excited to see that you were active in this space. I think we'd been looking to do something in this area for a while. Can you say a little more about your interest in, I know you have some as a playwright, a particular interest in representation in the theater, which as somebody who does not frequent that much theater, I had never even thought about that particular aspect, more thinking about movies and TV. Yeah, fair. So I have a master's degree in screenwriting and playwriting, and I have been in drama schools for many years, and there is definitely a lack of diversity within a lot of drama schools, which is quite poignant to see. Personally, I was diagnosed with glaucoma about 10 years ago now, and I don't have vision in one eye, and I have quite damaged vision in the other. And my favorite thing when I tell people about that is their first response is, why don't you get an eye transplant? Which is not how that works (laughs) at all. And then the conversation usually proceeds where people trying to talk me out of having any kind of illness and what would it be like if I didn't have this problem and how great life would be. So I took that and I wrote my dissertation piece for my master's about a gentleman in a wheelchair who is sort of coerced by his family to... He's part of a medical trial to be able to walk again and sort of how that destroys his sense of identity and how disability and identity really come together. And for a lot of able-bodied people, there's this desire to just kind of imagine away somebody's disability and what their life would be like. And that I think is really damaging. And it's not something that's represented really anywhere very effectively and certainly not consistently. Thanks for sharing that. Before we totally step in it a bunch of times, you've now used the term disability and differently abled. And I'm trying to make sure I understand if there is a correct term or if those terms actually mean something different, because it's not clear to me that they actually are the same thing at all. So help us out so we sound better than we actually are. Oh, I'm such a terrible person for this. The terminology, I think, is a lot like the gender identity, that it's very specific to person. I tend to look at things as disabled is a legal form. If you have certain visual impairments, you are considered legally disabled. I don't meet those requirements, but my life is severely impacted by my ability to see, and so I consider myself differently abled. I think that's probably a good one to go with in terms of what disability means, and that it does have 
a legal definition. One of my friends pointed out in college, I don't think this joke was original to him. He would say that you would try someone else's glasses on and say, oh man, you're blind. But you would never sit in their wheelchair and say, oh man, you're crippled. And there is this idea of things that aren't disabilities, but things that are correctable as being completely different in our minds from things that aren't. And of course, even correctability, there is some language in there that is pointing to this idea that being able-bodied is in fact correct, whereas anything else is being incorrect in some way. It's so pervasive in our language and the sort of thing that we are so comfortable talking about things being lame or whatever in a way that we have really had our come-to-Jesus moments with race and with other cultural things where ability and disability, I think, is still the final frontier the laws being passed in 1973 and forward, notwithstanding. Many people are really just uncomfortable about talking about it. They don't know how to address it, so they try to ignore it. And by ignoring it, ignore a whole group of people. But I think in certain ways, it's not even a matter of not knowing how to talk about other people's differently abled selves, but their own. Even if it comes to a mental health standpoint, a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about that. But we're starting to see more people becoming comfortable with it within themselves. So maybe that will lead to them being comfortable addressing people unlike themselves too. I don't know. I got very lucky a few years ago to do a play called Tribes. And I played a character who was going deaf, who was a child of deaf adults. So a coda. And I got to work with a lot of well-respected and wonderful educators from the deaf community. And that was the first time that I had thought about a lot of things surrounding not only representation, but abilities and learned that a lot of people who are deaf don't consider it a disability. They consider it, once again, like they're other-abled and they have their own language. And it's a huge debate just within that community, not to mention all of the other communities that are differently abled. This conversation is ripe. I don't know what, where we're going to go with it, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see today how, how much we can dive into. Well, can we say a little about what disability culture is, if that is a thing, or is it really just specific to particular disabilities that you could say there is deaf culture because there are like established communities and schools and things, whereas with some other conditions, you don't have that so much. Kayla, do you have any sense of that? I think it is regional in the type of disability. The deaf community is a very strong and well-connected community. I think that's one of those things that's a lot easier to see versus other communities, people with mental health issues, people with visual impairments, things that I don't know if the communities are as strong. I haven't spent a lot of time within various disabled communities or differently abled communities. I've connected with people who have similar issues to me. The internet is a fantastic, sometimes awful place. And you can get a lot of support. But there is such a wide range of ability and disability that it's very easy to go into some of those spaces and be like, oh, well, I should really be grateful what I have because other people have it much worse. And then you kind of feel like you're on the outs of it a bit. So even within the disabled community, there are different layers and levels and it's very easy to also kind of feel excluded within some of those. I know within the deaf community, there is a huge conflict between people who are born deaf and people who lose their hearing later in life. And those people within that community can kind of be split along those lines, which is an, an interesting dynamic that I think a lot of people wouldn't know or encounter unless you're in it. 
the people who want cochlear implants versus the ones who are absolutely against it. And even as we go into this conversation about this representation within the entertainment industry, I realized that when I got to play this role, it was an honor. Maybe I wasn't the right person to play it, even though it was a character who was hearing who was going deaf, which is why they went with a hearing person. But there's also like, hopefully, I don't know what the casting process was like. Hopefully they did open it up to people who also had those issues where they were also experiencing hard of hearing issues. The new Stephen King's The Stand came out recently on CBS All Access. And there has been a lot of conversation around that with one of the characters who is deaf and mute. The character rarely speaks, but they went with a hearing actor who did not know any sign language beforehand to play this part. And a lot of people in the deaf community said, enough is enough. Did you all get to watch any of that? Did you all have any thoughts about that particular portrayal? I just remember Rob Lowe playing it last time. I didn't see that. I haven't seen the new one. But I guess if you have to have Rob Lowe, then I think that's often what it seems to come down to. But for a relatively minor character, and it's not a big name actor in the new one, right? It's not. Okay. Then, like, why would you not have gone with someone who's in that community? One of the things I think they they talked about was they did change the character to be a character who I believe had immigrated to the United States. So they did, as the industry may say, tick a box in representation, but by doing so, they took another one away. I think that is an issue that happens a lot in entertainment. I guess we're kind of taking for granted what some listeners might not, which is that representation is a good thing. You know, that people like to see stories about themselves, that if if your group is never represented, then nobody else will understand you when they actually run into you in real life because they've never encountered this thing before, a person like this. And it's also for the people in those communities, obviously seeing yourself represented, your stories represented, like it's a big deal. Nobody wants to dispute that, I assume, for our purposes. No, but I think it goes further than that because it's also media becomes a way for those stories to be told by those communities to maybe, again, draw more parallels to racial representation. This idea of having stories about the Black community was always seen as a step in the right direction. But what was really as important or possibly more important was stories created by Black creators, right? So it's not just these are stories told by the same old Hollywood establishment and they're putting minorities in them. It's minority stories. And I think having people who are differently able, being able to tell their stories with the actors that represent it correctly strikes me as the kind of logical place for that to go. Erica, I feel like what you were in, was it a musical or a play? A play. A play that you describe. I mean, it seems like that's the easiest one to reconcile because you're a character who has to not have that disability part of the time, right? Like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. There was a need for an actor who had legs part of the time and didn't have legs part of the time. And so that was dealt with with technology with an actor who had all of his limbs. Artie in Glee walks in one episode, but he is in a wheelchair for seasons upon seasons. And it's a little less clear to me if that could have been done in some other way. And then, of course, we get to what you talked about with the stand of not even trying. So there's clearly a spectrum of what the need is. And I would think certainly with technology, it becomes harder and harder to say, well, we just need a fully abled actor to do this just because that's the only way we could tell our story. I'm not totally buying that in today's day and age. Now, part of that probably, and I think, Kayla, you had to address this as well in your work and schooling, is that there's not always the greatest training programs for people who are otherly abled (laughs) to go into 
an acting or musical theater program that's not designed for people who can't act, sing, and dance at the drop of a hat. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the fundamental issues that has to really be addressed before I think we can see a lot of progress is that our training schools are not set up or designed or even based in theory that makes room for different bodies, for bodies that aren't typical. And as a writer, if I was to have a film script finally made, I want the best person portraying those characters. You know, I want it to be the best that it can possibly be. And in my mind, that becomes a conflict of, is this something that needs to be portrayed by an actor who has a specific disability? Or would I be like, hey, yeah, Brian Cranston, you can be the star of my film, 100%. (laughs) And that's a really weird place to be in when you have to look at sort of the integrity of your piece and wanting to be the strongest that it is. And also your ethics of making sure that this is a part for somebody who's disabled. Let's get a great disabled actor here for it. It is really something that I think our drama schools have to step up and deal with. And I think, you know, if we look at race, they've really done that. For a long time, acting schools, acting programs for rich, pasty white kids. And there has been a lot more work towards inclusion, making it financially viable from working class students. And I think that's kind of the next step we need to get to is we need our schools and our training programs to be able to take in differently abled bodies and get them to that same caliber. You know, at the end of the day, it's still acting. So in Bridgerton, you don't need a 16th century woman to be playing a 16th century character. You're using a modern person. (laughs) So you don't have to necessarily fall into these categories to play these characters. But on the flip side of that, and I think the way we're going, is there are so few parts that are disabled characters that we should find a way to give those opportunities to disabled actors. And to say that there's not disabled actors out there or there's not disabled people out there who want to act, I think is really underestimating the community and it's kind of a cop-out. Or I could see people raising just concerns, as there would be if you want to obey the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have to change your buildings, even if it's expensive, to put in ramps and things. And so, likewise, it would sure be convenient to be able to just hand out the same script to everybody, whereas if you have a blind actor involved, then you'd have to make some extra accommodations. Assuming it's not something that's run on an absolute shoestring budget. Like right now, I don't know how we would have a non-speaking deaf guest on the podcast. Maybe just have a friend with them translating sort of. But for any major production, you can probably get around whatever the issues are. I don't know. Is this actually an excuse that's normally given? It's just, it's an extra thing to have to worry about that a lot of productions don't want to have to worry about. Not having been in that part of the industry, I don't know what their excuse is, but I could very easily see picking up any little piece as a reason to not put the extra effort in. It's expensive to add a ramp onto a building. It still needs to be done at some point, but does that institution want to be the one to deal with it or that period of time in the institution want to be the one to deal with it. It is frustrating. It is frustrating because I think there's a lot of very basic arguments that, oh, well, it takes a lot of time or it's kind of difficult, so we're not really going to deal with it. We're just going to go for the easier route. And films, the money that they make is sometimes astronomical for us to think, but also the amount of money they put into things is quite astronomical to think. Certainly Broadway plays. I think I read something that it, it takes 
what is it, like five or something years for a Broadway musical to turn a profit for the actual cost it takes to mount everything before they actually turn a profit. So having anything where you're adding them to add any more monetary cost onto things, I think it's a really great way that they can just be like, nope, sorry, not going to do it. It's just too expensive. And it's a bullshit excuse, I think. That's an industry that's really not struggling for ways to say no to stuff, right? Looking at a casting call and people come through and any little flaw or someone is wrong in any way, it's next person. So this idea that they're going to just change their stripes just seems a little bit laughable to me without some pressure. Yeah, I think it was the first Annie film. They had the actress for Annie lined up everything. They had all the costumes done, ready to go. She did growth spurt. She grew like two or three inches and they cut her and put somebody else in because it's like, no, it's too much money to like redo the costumes and everything. Sorry, it's kind of hurt. Yeah, and I don't work in the really the film industry either, but talking to friends who have, they're like the casting Especially for like, even if you're talking about people who have very small roles or background roles, that casting goes so fast and they want to look at a picture and see exactly the person they're looking for. And they're not putting any extra effort into saying, what could that person be? Or how could I cast this better? They're like, no, the turnaround is fast and they just don't do it. On the other hand, a lot of those productions, I would think, are the ones who are actually making a lot of money. Like your Law and Order or that kind of machine that is always up in the Nielsen ratings. Like what better place to start and show representation than in a series like that that can make a lot of money? But then again, I guess we'd have to get somebody from casting to kind of explain all that <laughs> as well. Yeah, that might be a separate topic. I was just reading about this, so the show Atypical. So this is a show about autism. And it obviously has its heart in the right place in terms of like showing what it's realistically what it's like to live with this disorder, with a, a family with this condition. But I didn't really realize until just reading this that the main actor is not actually on the spectrum. They have cast other people who are on the spectrum. But I could see how with that in particular, because some of the things I watched the first season of that and some of them are about like how he just can't handle being in places where there's sort of too loud and too much going on in a movie set or, you know, a TV set seems like a place that's loud with a lot of stuff going on. I don't know how difficult it, it would be to make somebody that central on a show like that and have somebody that actually has the condition. I was hearing something, I think my daughter was telling me about some theater production that was also about autism where they originally cast somebody who was on the spectrum and that person just actually couldn't handle the demands of the role. I would think it might be different for different conditions. I don't know. Would you accept that as an excuse? That's a tough one. I think the place we are now and the way the industry now is, we might have to accept that as an excuse. I think in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, that excuse won't be viable anymore because we will have had enough time to put things in place and to recognize the opportunities that we've missed to get proper representation. I think the Disabled community and representation right now is at a starting point to go forward. The fact that we're starting to have these conversations, whereas 20, 30 years ago, we probably weren't, it means we're starting in the right direction. But I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think as an industry, people of power are not quite willing to step up and stop the excuse. I think we need to continue to call them on that regularly to the point where it stops being a viable excuse to them and they have to step up. And I think we saw it with actors of color and the stories that we were telling about them and the fact that we've not completely, but have stepped up and, and made a lot better representation. 
Same with the LGBTQ community. I think the disabled community is just starting out their journey on this. Well, it's certainly an industry that makes room for narcissists and... uh, (laughs) It's always had narcissists. (laughs) That was not a tough sell for them. Yeah, if you think about the things that are excused versus the things that are decided aren't worth excusing, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And it makes sometimes as a person with an inside look into the industry, it makes you want to quit. But like, that's exactly why you shouldn't quit, right? So I guess that's another question then is how do you continue? And this can be for anybody to muse on to try to fight the good fight, even when it seems like people aren't making the space. And even if they are, they're not doing it in a way that's even very helpful to the cause. And are there shows that have done that, in your opinions? Let us stop for a sponsor break. Care slash of. Care of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long term. All of Care of's products are formulated with good for you clean ingredients that are backed by science. Care of is super transparent about the research and sourcing behind each one of their products, and your recommendations come in individually wrapped packets that are perfect for getting back into a routine. I am awaiting my first Care of package right now, but I can tell you about the online quiz by which they figure out what to send you. It's a five-minute experience asking you questions about your diet, lifestyle, and health concerns, so they're going to send you something to help you address your specific wellness goals. This is like getting a one-on-one consultation with a nutritionist without leaving your house. So you'll get a personally tailored approach to your unique health needs. You can follow their expert recommendations or adjust your pack at any time. What you receive is totally up to you. So do you want to add a daily vitamin to help support your energy, sleep, fitness goals, something to help your digestion? Make taking better care of your health a priority and make it super easy with Care Of. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code PMP50. To hear that 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com, enter code PMP50. It seems like you should divide up the type of representation between, is it a show that's chiefly, and its goal is to portray this condition? So like Atypical is an example of like, it's a show about autism. They make a point to have like a lot of the plots involve his sister, which is, some of it's also about living with someone with autism, but some of it's just completely irrelevant to that, like her love life and what's going on. And so it's trying to sort of make it not all about the condition, but that's still sort of the point of the show. It's the title of the show. Or Speechless is another major network family comedy. I've only watched like two episodes of it, but it is about a boy with cerebral palsy and his family and how they're sort of fitting into the community and tries as as much as possible to just be a good comedy itself. Like that is showing this and it's again, right in the title of the show. But then there's also just like Breaking Bad where you just have a character that has a condition and that's not what the show's about. I mean, I guess the latter seems to be like what more the goal of disability rights activists is, right? That just, we want to include people we want to, in stories, yes, it is important at least once to have a story about introducing this condition to the world. Like what's the the film Wonder? I forget what the facial condition that that, the boy in that has. And it's all just about like how you should be understanding of people who have these different appearances. And it's a very good anti-bullying kind of film. But like that shouldn't be all there is. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Mark, because I was really thinking along those same lines. And I don't want to totally crap on Glee because I think it really is good that Artie being in a wheelchair, regardless of who portrayed him. And there are episodes about 
him, but there are also episodes where he is just one of the kids, but he happens to be the kid in the wheelchair or Joe in Family Guy. And sometimes it's about him. And again, another case where he's in a wheelchair and sometimes he's just one of the guys up to no good and pulling pranks with Peter Griffin and the gang. So it's better than the alternative of just not doing it. Right. And it's so easy to not do it. And I think I mentioned this in a different podcast where at some point in A Few Good Men, someone wrote down, well, why is Demi Moore character, why is this being played by a woman? And the idea was, well, if she's not a love interest of anybody and her womanness doesn't contribute to the story, why wouldn't we just go with the default it being a man? And I think the same can be asked of all these things. Well, if someone's ability isn't playing into the story, why do we have them being differently abled at all? And the answer is because this is who we are. And there are people who are going to see that. I'll admit, growing up in a northern suburb of Chicago, I didn't see a lot of Black people, hardly any. And it was only through representations in media or occasionally getting out of the little bubble I was in where I even had anything to reflect on as you know what that culture was. And fortunately, I have had a chance to see the world and have experiences. But for some people, that probably remains all the exposure that they get. I think Breaking Bad is one of my favorite representations, not because it's a great show, but it's a disabled character played by a disabled actor, but that's not the defining characteristic of him as a character. It's just part of who he is, and it's a non-issue. That's just how he is. You know, they make some accommodations, but his personality is not, he's the disabled character on this. He's a snotty kind of teenager who's dealing with a lot of shit. And that, to me, I think is the best starting point for representation, is to just have these actors and these characters and not feel the need to center the story around them or to highlight and be like, I don't know if you saw the disabled character over there, but we have one. But to just let them be there and be part of the story and not having to highlight them and put them up on this pedestal or make them a big thing to point out. I think if we do that consistently, then it's a lot easier to tell their stories and to make them the center because we're more used to seeing them and we're comfortable seeing them and they don't feel out of place. Well, we had a great British Bake Off episode and Bryony Williams did not come up in this context at all. And they don't make a deal about it on the show, to my knowledge, even once. They just show her making stuff, her disability. She refers to, one of the articles said, she refers to what she calls a little hand. So that's just a birth. I don't know what words to use. Uh, <laughs> a differently shaped hand. So the more of that, but at the same time, you know, as somebody watching it, how could you not pay attention to that? Because it is something that you don't ever see. A lot of the problems in disability representation have to do with the attitude of those of us who are not disabled or not disabled in that particular way that we're fearful, fascinated. I was looking at articles on humor and disability, the fact that, you know, you have characters like Mr. Magoo sort of as that blindness humor. I'm thinking of like the Saturday Night Live sketch of Stevie Wonder, actually, Stevie Wonder was the guest, I believe. He's doing a, a like a Nikon commercial. Oh. So they're showing him just taking pictures around random. Like, there's so much humor. Clearly, the issue is... We don't know how to talk about it. People are not disabled telling stories <laughs> to not disabled people. And that's the sort of default. But then, even as the disabled people get involved in the creation, like, they want to have humor involved, too. Like, you can't outlaw all discomfort or humor or fear because that puts the person on a pedestal as well. 
But I think that's part of the problem, though, is that we don't know how to talk about it. And we've been told not to talk about it. Like, it's not right. It's not nice to talk about. And it's like, well, like as children, when you learn that, then it starts to be something that feels like a secret that you have to be secretive about. And you have to say, like, without actually addressing just otherness. I have an aunt who had polio and I thought she was absolutely fascinating and she used to let me play with her crutches and tell me about what it was like going through the experience. And when young kids would come up to her, as I got older, I would see young kids come up to her and she said they would say like, what's wrong with your legs? Why are your legs like that? And she would just be honest about it, you know, and because it didn't bother her. She's like, this is just how I am. And the onus is not on the people who are otherly able to necessarily educate us. But I think that as we all get older and we are setting an example for young people, and part of this needs to happen with our education via television and film and all of this, that we don't talk about it in this way that's either putting people on pedestals or making it something that you should never talk about. And we just need to see it more. If we see it more and we see people being represented in a way that is not just about abilities, then guess what? We start seeing them as, I think, fully realized human beings. (laughs) I think we got to open up that conversation somehow. And I don't always know how to do it, but I think what we're doing right now, as awkward as we all are, talking about it, except for Kayla, because you're doing a beautiful job. It's still important to have the conversation. I've spent the past four years living in London in England. And obviously London, England, everyone knows that. (laughs) Not London, Ontario, which I nearly (laughs) bought a one-way ticket to. Hey, there you go. See? I think the British are a bit ahead of us in this regard. There are a lot of disabled comedians who are very out there, who are very vocal. One thing I think the British do so much better than the U.S. is they have talk shows, chat shows, weekly like, go over the what happened this week with people with a variety of experiences, a variety of different body types. And it's such a normal thing there. They have all kinds of like celebrity game shows and things like that. Something called Countdown 8 Out of 10 Cats, which is this hilarious like letters and numbers quiz show, but they have comedians on and they make social commentary. But they have a lot of disabled and differently abled people that come on that are just part of their culture and part of contemporary pop culture that are just out there. And it's not a big thing that, you know, not every time they come in, they're like, I'm disabled and I'm representing the world. It's like, this is who I am. And this is my perspective on things. And these are the things that have happened to me. And they really have latched onto that and they've really run with it. And I think that's a really great way to just kind of get the awkwardness over is just to have the representation there constantly. They have done some fantastic roast battles with disabled comedians, just like roasting each other. And it's very entertaining. But it also just kind of gets that awkwardness out of the way. I think the British are just doing a little bit better. It seems like they're also what we kind of consider as niceties in the U.S. that actually really aren't that nice. I was watching the other day on Disney Plus, Marvel behind, I believe it was called Behind the Mask. And there was a lot of conversation about representation, mostly about representation with Black superheroes, female superheroes. And Mark, I saw that you had also mentioned a little bit about this, talking about superheroes with other abilities, right? And I think what a wonderful thing, gift it is for us to have the Marvel Universe celebrating so many different types of abilities. And one of the people they were interviewing said that from the Fantastic Four, the one that's like made out of boulders, Ben Grimm. Yeah. He's like, 
that was my favorite character when I was growing up because he was a black man. And they're like, what do you mean he's a black man? Well, he couldn't change what he looked like, right? He was always looked at as other. He was always looked at as not as pleasing as the other ones, right? And he couldn't change that. He's like, that's how I felt growing up. And I think that superhero stories have a really wonderful benefit of being able to show this otherness in a way that is celebrated and not celebrated. I don't think it's celebrated in the same way as what we were talking about. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, but I don't think it's like putting them on a pedestal. It's just saying like, this is different about me. And this is also something that creates opportunity in a very different way for me. I think that's really baked into the X-Men and this whole idea of otherness and really how I think the gay community looked at X-Men reflecting their own experience of you are this other way and you are differently abled. And some X-Men are like Ben Grimm where they have to look the way they look all the time and others can pass and they can hide their differentness or their otherness. Leave it to science fiction and fantasy to cover some of this more intelligently than people who are meaning well or just maybe not even meaning well, just just trying to tell straight stories. Your mention of this, Erica, brings us to a, an article we had read, Roadmap for Inclusion, Changing the Face of Disability in Media. And it talked about different tropes. And I think these tropes come up in different places as we look around. But I thought this was instructive as I was getting ready for this, because I don't think I had ever really categorized some of the common ways that disabilities are are looked at in media. And I'm just going to read off the four that we have here. And so there's the first is called super crip. And this is having a disability that is actually a superpower. Daredevil is the one that's listed. I'm trying to think if others really come to mind. You know, he has his echolocation that makes him see better in some ways than a sighted person. Anyway, villain being the next. And I think Mark, you may have listed some of these with the Joker and Voldemort. And I mentioned Mr. Glass on the list from Unbreakable. The victim and Million Dollar Baby is the example listed here. And then Innocent Fool with Rain Man being listed. But I think that's also a bit of a super crip. And boy, I sure feel uncomfortable saying that, but it's the words in front of me. So I'm going to be not saying it anymore. And then um, Lenny from Of Mice and Men. And in all cases, I feel like, well, maybe not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, there is certainly an otherness in them. These people aren't being presented in a way that we are supposed to empathize with. Maybe we're supposed to sympathize in some way, or maybe we're supposed to be rooting against them, but we're not seeing ourselves reflected in them in any meaningful way, in kind of the most straight trope sort of way. I could see the huge frustration of saying, well, if this is the only way representation is happening, it sure isn't getting the job done. Yeah, it's probably worth dwelling on those categories individually a little. I mean, the superhero thing, I just, I find, I don't want to use the word problematic, but it's the unrealistic expectation that if you lose some of your sight, then you will gain super smell. You will gain your spidey sense. Kayla is shaking her head. Didn't you happen. did not gain spidey sense. I was sense. so hopeful. <laughs> Nothing. I just run into shit more. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's mentioned, you know, why this is a bad stereotype is because it, again, characterizes it as somebody like Daredevil overcomes their disability. You might see I can't remember like what public service thing, something about superheroes. Well, there's superheroes in everyday life, like this person who has a disability and has managed to live and become a a lawyer despite the disability. What a heroic thing, which on the one hand, yes, this is inspirational, but there was another video I will point people at this. I'm not your inspiration. Thank you very much by Stella Young, which is a TED talk who really takes exception of the idea that just because someone... Of course, there are objective things to overcome, 
but that she saw her experience gaining gainful employment and things as very much ordinary and very much objects people wanting to like call her a hero all the time. I will say though that with the Daredevil story, his story is not just a story of being blind. Like there's a lot going on in his story. I think that's worthy of, he's a great superhero for other reasons. I don't think that it just centers around that. Am I wrong? Like I haven't read the comics, but I watched the TV show. I mean, it just comes down to it that it is not really a story by or about blindness, right? It's by Stan Lee, who is just imagining. So a lot of these things, like one of the other categories here, the victim, there was another film, Me Before You. Kayla, do you want to, do you want to, you're, you're shaking your head in disgust. I was actually dating a guy in a wheelchair when this film came out, which was the topic of all of the conversation for a very long time. <laughs> oh, Can you give us a quick, how the, the relevant synopsis? Yeah, so it's, it's this young man, um, and I think I'm remembering all this right, who has this massive accident. He's very active lifestyle, massive accident, ends up in a wheelchair, and he decides that he doesn't want to live as someone in a wheelchair, and he's going to go to Switzerland to the euthanasia clinic and end his life. And he ends up... This girl played by Amelia Clark, like, you know, who doesn't love her, comes into his life and they have this great romance. This big debate of like, is life even worth living if you can't ski? Um, (laughs) And it's just, it was deeply upsetting to the guy I was seeing at the time who had been in a wheelchair his entire life and was a reporter and was doing really great and very happy. And to me, it, it was very problematic and difficult as well. Because, you know, when I lost my sight, I did have a period of time of being like, well, if I go completely blind, do I want to live like that? And I think those are just such dangerous thoughts to even implant in people's heads. Going back to like the superhero trope, one of the things that I think the the reason we like seeing that of, oh, well, they lost their sight, but look at all these superpowers they gained, is we think, okay, if something like that were to happen to me, something catastrophic, life-changing, something great would come out of that. Something, you know, I, I might not be able to see, but I could do all these great things and it would be okay. And films like Me Without You or Million Dollar Baby put the seed in there that maybe if something like that were to happen, would you not even want to live? And that can be a really dangerous thing because, you know, people with disabilities face social struggles all the time. And planting that seed, I think, is really a dangerous thing. And I think it's a dangerous thing to plant within society as well. We still have a lot of people who will abort fetuses if they have, you know, disabilities that might be survivable. You know, that's a whole other can of worms and people have very strong opinions on that. But I think this idea of a disabled life may not be worth living, but your girlfriend can pull you back from the edge if she's hot enough is just problematic. And I don't think it did any good for the community. It didn't do any good for representation. I don't think it was a story that we really should have taken time to tell when there are so many others. Thank you for that. We broke up because he was a jerk in the end, but still, that movie. (laughs) I have mixed feelings now about my pitch for Million Dollar Baby 2 Ghost Boxer. Yeah, that might might get you in some hot water. I guess what I was trying to say with the, the superhero thing is that handling issues that are difficult, it's not necessarily... I see what you're saying about well, you lose something, but you gain something so much greater and like how that can definitely be problematic. I think there is something special about a lot of comic book characters and superhero characters. 
it's a way for a lot of different types of people, no matter who that type of person is, to feel seen in a way that they may not otherwise be seen in a lot of media. But as far as that other part of it, that problematic part, I don't know. Like, I don't know what would bring back and justify it from that aspect. Good questions. I'll admit, I don't know a lot of superhero stuff. I don't think there's a problem with that trope of if you lose something, then you gain something so much better. I think that's great. And I think that it's a helpful way for people to kind of reconcile. I think the thing to remember is that it is a fantasy land and that real life doesn't always work out that way. If you lose something, then you gain something great. But I don't think there's any problem with having that and enjoying that and liking that representation. I don't think that's the most problematic type of representation that's on that list. Let's quickly look at the villain. So this is also fantasy, that disability scares us. And a lot of the depictions of villains, of horrors, I'm actually thinking like an extreme, like Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Like, could that be a symbol? You know, a guy literally turns into a cockroach. How much differently? But he still has all the human, like if there really were cockroach people, you would want to be very sympathetic to them. I don't know if that's helpful. What's he actually here on the list is the fact that I didn't realize that about five different James Bond villains were all in wheelchairs. This person listed Voldemort, I guess the noselessness. Anyway, or The Witches was a recent one, this Roald Dahl remake of like, why do they have scary hands? Like, it is just a fact that those hands on those witches are scary to kid viewers, but yet, isn't that horrible for people that actually have hands that look different to have this be the only representation of them, that like, if you look like me, you're evil. I mean, I think it's a lazy default. And I think it's one that you look at the James Bond franchises, it's been going on for a long time. I think this is part of one of the first things that we can really change and we can really say this is where we need to tackle this because it is lazy. And I think The Witches was a particularly unfortunate choice because I think there's a lot of better ways you can do that. And they just went for the easiest option, especially for a children's movie. You're teaching children that, you know, anybody with a physical deformity that you can see or abnormality is auto bad. And we can't progress if we start saying, okay, you have this automatically bad. I think it goes to politics, you know? Oh, you believe this? Automatically bad. Well, once you do that, you can't move forward and you can't create any change and any positive reaction. So I think the villain trope is laziness on the part of many storytellers. And I think it's the easiest one that we could just get rid of by consistently calling it out. It seems like there's a fair amount of overlap with body horror. And part of why it's easy, I think, is because it is so effective. And there are some things that aren't People don't have button eyes. I'm thinking of Coraline, right? But it's really uncanny and creepy. And I get why you do that in order to unsettle the audience. So I think where we start having a problem is we just start doing things that are really are true disabilities. You know, Brundlefly in the David Cronenberg film, nobody looks like that. And I don't have a problem with that. It's also an R-rated thing meant to creep out adults. So we are looking at definitely a range of who the audience is and what we're doing, how we are changing sort of the standard cookie cutter body and changing it in different ways in order to make a villain out of it. I put Mr. Glass on the list. His extreme breakability was central to his character in a way that I find somewhat forgivable because in contrast to, is it David Dunn, Unbreakable, Security, truly not being able to be broken. It was a complete contrast. And so there was very intentional storytelling, not just, oh, 
let's just give him some disability and make him the bad guy. And Brian, if you actually write a story called Cookie Cutter Body, that's a horror story, that sounds absolutely terrifying. That really does. (laughs) Maybe call it literal cookie cutter body. Maybe you have to put that word in there. Sweet. I think we should have a future episode with a disabled comedian because there's a whole thing about comedy and our fundamental way of dealing with, you know, kind of what we're scared of and how comedy does that. That is a rich main to discuss further. I guess, are there any final sort of recommendations, things for watching, for reading, something that people might want to read more about? I wanted to recommend, I really enjoyed the first season of Everything's Going to Be Okay. And it has not just one autistic character, but multiple and different representations of the spectrum, as well as input from the actors themselves who are on the spectrum to help create a better script for that. So I think it's a heartwarming story. It's really sweet. But once again, now I just feel, of course, this is an important conversation. I know this because now I still feel like I could talk about it for another like four hours and learn so much more. And I think for me, that's where I'm telling myself that's the important part is just to keep asking these questions and not just assume that I know or that what I see in the media is what is true. This is not obviously something we can solve in an hour or in a day. In the next few years, I think we're going to see gradual improvement as we continue to hold the industry accountable going forward. And I don't think we should beat ourselves up about the problems that we've had so far and instead focus on making things better as we go forward. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for getting us thinking about this. Yeah, thank you so much, Kayla. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, so long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.